The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Got up early one morning, walked in the kitchen to pour himself a glass of milk. The milk was hot, it was spoiled, it was no good. That's when he realized that his refrigerator wasn't working. Maybe you've been there at some point in your life. It seems the span of time that an appliance will last nowadays is getting less and less, but his refrigerator wasn't working. He was pretty fed up with that, so he went down to the old Sears and Roebuck company and was trying to find another one. Well, he looked and he searched and he up, walked up and down all those rows and finally he found one. It was the end of an aisle and surprisingly enough in this story, this refrigerator cost a sum of $10,000. Now you and I well know, you and I have never owned a refrigerator that cost $10,000, but that's what this man wanted. He didn't want one that was going to break down. He wanted one he thought would last. And so he asked the man to go ahead and let him pay for it. They were delivering it to his house. So on the way home, he stopped off and he brought a brand new set of groceries, including several gallons of milk and a lot of meat to put in the freezer. He was excited at the hope of this brand new refrigerator being delivered in just a few hours. Well, they brought it out just like they had said. They parked it right there in the spot where the old one was and they left. And He was excited again. He packed all those meats, all that milk, everything that he bought inside that refrigerator, and he looked forward to the next morning when perhaps his milk would taste much better than it did the day before. But he woke up, and he was very disappointed. He opened the refrigerator, and once again the milk was just as bad, perhaps even worse, than it was the day before. He looked into the freezer there, and all those frozen meats had thawed out. As a matter of fact, there was some type of a substance beginning to, to stroll out into the floor there make a spot there in his floor. He was very upset. He picked up the phone and he called Sales and Roba and he told them, he said, this refrigerator you sold me is no good. It doesn't work. And I want you to come get this thing out of my house right now. Well, the person on the other end of the phone said, well, sir, before we do that, can you do a few things for me just so I can evaluate what might be the problem? He said, I'll do whatever you want, but you better come get it. He said, well, get down very low in the floor. Put your ear nearly to the ground and see if you can hear it running. Is there any sounds, any fans, any compressors running? And he got down. He ran back to the phone. He said, no, I don't hear a thing. He said, well, that's a problem. He said, well, can you look back in the refrigerator? Look and see if to you it seems like it's cooling. He said, well, I can answer that one right now. My milk was hot. The meats are melted. It's not cooling like it all. He said, well, just do me one more favor. Open the door and look in and see if you see a light on. Maybe there's a light on in there. That'll give you some idea as to what's going on. He came back and said, see, I told you it's a piece of junk. The light's not even on. Well, at that point, the man trying to be kind almost laughed under his breath and said, I'll tell you what, sir. Can you walk around the back and see if that thing's plugged in? He stepped around the back, and sure enough, it wasn't. Now he was really mad. He said, you mean you delivered me a $10,000 refrigerator to my home, and you didn't as much as plug again? I shouldn't have to plug in a refrigerator that costs this much. It ought to do its job without even using my own power. 
You say, well, that's ridiculous. Surely no one would be that ignorant. Probably they weren't. I think it would take quite a bit of ignorance to have bought the $10,000 refrigerator. But I'm going to tell you, it's no more ignorant to do that than to be a child of God who claims that you can get through life without worshiping God on a regular basis. Because, you see, for us to refuse to worship God on the Lord's Day, for example, as we are today, is to refuse to be plugged in to the very throne of God. For us to deny opportunities such as are provided for you here in this congregation on Wednesday nights when there's a Bible class session, a devotional time, why that within itself is to refuse to be plugged into God and to miss the point of what God desires of us more than anything, and that is worship. If you've got your Bibles in hand, I hope that you open them with me in the book of John. When you get there, go to John chapter 4. I want to pick up a reading there, John chapter 4, beginning in about verse 19. John chapter 4 and verse 19. In the background behind the context, we'll discuss in a moment that the major point behind the context we're about to read is that of worship. The discussion is, which, is that which occurs between Jesus our Lord himself and yet a woman he would meet by a well, a woman of Samaria. But John chapter 4 and verse 19, here's what the discussion, the brunt of the discussion is at least. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And she adds in verse 20, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, perhaps she pointed to it. And ye say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye, when, ne, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now verse 22 and 23 you'll be most familiar with. Ye worship and ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers. Now if you want to underline that phrase in your mind, underline the phrase true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Now verse 24, if you know nothing about this, you've heard this. For God is a spirit, and they that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. Friends, it is immensely important for each one of us as children of God's that we worship God. It is commanded upon us, it is in that imperative sense there in verse 24 when he commands that we must worship, and the way that we worship is just as important. And I want you to realize that. I talked about just briefly in the last hour about the praying church, the congregation here in, in, in Weaver and how it ought to be a praying church. And we talked about the aspects in such a prayer from a previous context of Matthew chapter 7. And today, this, this, this hour, I want to speak to you about the worshiping church. Because if this church were the greatest praying church and you spent all your time in prayer and that's all that you did, that may seem lovely, that may seem great. But if you as a congregation and individually especially are not willing to worship God as He commands, then the impossibility of being right in His sight is ever present in your life. There is no way in this world, as we might say it, there's no way in this world to be pleasing to God and then turn and refuse to worship Him, not only in worshiping Him initially, but worshiping Him in the way that He desires. Now look at the context here, and I want to back it up just a little bit. If you were to grow all the way back up to John chapter 4 and verse 1, you would find out much about our Lord. You would find out that He had been in the midst or caught between a rock and a hard place, really. People were coming to Him, and they were saying unto Him, you know what, you've got more disciples than John. And they believed John. They loved John, and they didn't want to hear that. 
And so basically Jesus decides it was better for him to walk away from the situation at that point than to continue, and he already tried, but then to continue to try to persuade these people that even though John was important, he was even more important, even though that was fact. And in verse 4 is the key of the whole context because he says Jesus saw at that point that he must needs go. He was going to Jerusalem, but he says, I must needs go through or by Samaria. You think about that place, Samaria. This matters to what we're going to discuss. You think about the Samaritan people and the place of Samaria. It's a place basically, as they would have described it, probably the Jews might have described it, the Samaritans were a half-breed people. Now, I don't mean that derogatory, but what had gone, what had gone on in the preceding uh, book, and that I mean by that the book of the Old Law, the book of the Old Testament, the Samaritans themselves had intermingled with the Jews, basically, and had come up with their own kind of nation, their own type of people, which the Jews rejected, by the way. We learned that a little bit farther in the same context. This woman, when she meets with Jesus at the well, she cannot understand why he even utters any words to her. She's supposed to be, she thinks, in his eyes, despised. And I would say the majority of Samaritans probably felt a similar way uh, toward the Jews. But he meets with this woman here at Jacob's well. It's a very, very deep well. You can go there today and you can even see the same well. You could probably even draw water from it or have water be drawn from Jacob's well today. She's there by the well and she's seeking the same thing anyone else would, and that's water. But Jesus' discussion with her goes on, picking up in verse 10, and he begins to speak of her and the fact that she doesn't need just basic water, physical water. She needs living water. And as he's embarking on that discussion, that's verses 10 and following, he begins to speak to her about that living water that he can provide and how that if he provided that water, verse 14, she would never thirst again. Now, if you put yourself in the position of a Samaritan, She's embarking in a discussion with a Jew, Jesus, and she doesn't understand why the discussion is even going on. They're in a place called Samaria, which Jesus really uh, could have avoided. He had to choose to go through the mountain ranges to get to this place, but he said he needed to go there. And about the time he begins to speak to her about religious things, she does what many still do today, and she tries to change the subject. But here's what she does. She changes the subject inadvertently to worship. He just told her in the context we have not been able to read, but he just got to describing to her about her husband's verse 17, 18, and 19. And he tells her, he, he speaks to her about her husband's. He says, you need to go get your husband, bring him here. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right, you've had five. You've got one man you're living with now, and he's not even your husband. And that's where we spoke in verse 22. She said, I perceive, I'm getting the idea here you're some kind of prophet. And then over and over again, verse 22, 23, and 24, he speaks to her about worship, worship, worship. Why is that? The direct connection between verse 14, that water that will bring her life and which she will never thirst, is directly tied to our worship. To put that more simply before we go on, if we fail to worship, we're simply thirsting to death. We're looking for something. We're looking in areas where we cannot be fulfilled, but worship needs to be a fulfilling experience. And I'm not trying to speak of it as an experience the way some of the world does. I'm just saying that we need to be a part of worship. We need to be active participants in worship, stop enduring it, and start enjoying it. 
And I don't know if you've ever been to the congregations, and they do exist where the worship itself, it's right along God's word, right along God's line. We're going to start talking about that in a moment. But you've been there, and it's just dead, to put it plainly. You can't gain anything from that. You're not actually giving, thinking that you're giving glory to God in that, and that's true. But let's look at this idea just from these verses, verse 22, 23, and 24, some things that we need to understand about worship because a worshiping church will understand worship. Number one, when we consider this worship that he discusses, you have to understand there is meaning, that is, there's meaning to true worship. Now, as she said to him, uh, we, our fathers, they worshiped in this mountain. You're telling me I need to be in Jerusalem to worship. Jesus ex- exonerates to her, verse 22, ye worship, speaking to Samaritan, ye worship and you know not what. Then he speaks of himself and his, his cohorts, his nation, and he says, we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now, we read across that, and I've scratched my head about these situations, and I thought, you know, what is Jesus trying to get across? What's he trying to make her understand? Well, obviously about worship, but he's trying to really make her understand first about the meaning of worship. The first group he describes, which is the Samaritans, he speaks of them and basically says, you've got zeal. We would put the word enthusiasm in there probably, but you have zeal, but you don't have knowledge. She says, we've been worshiping in a mountain. We've been doing just what we thought was right, just what we desired to do. And maybe she would have proclaimed that she enjoyed and loved to be a part of worship to at least some kind of God. But Jesus says, no, you've got all the zeal in the world, ma'am, but you don't have the knowledge to back it up. Go with me for just a moment to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. You'll be familiar with this context too, I suppose. But Romans chapter 10 Beginning verse 1, the Apostle Paul being the penman here, uh, writes these words on behalf of God's inspiration. Here's what he says, Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. He said, Brethren, it's my heart's desire and prayer to the God of Israel that you might be saved. Then he adds in this, verse 2, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Now underline that phrase in your mind. But then he says, But not according to to knowledge. Verse 3 says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, in essence, this describes basically through God's words, uh, through the pen and mouth of Paul, it describes basically what Jesus is trying to tell her. He said, You're worshiping. Yes, you're worshiping, but you don't know what you're doing when you worship. Zeal without knowledge. And that describes many in the world today. We would immediately jump to the conclusion and say, well, I know where you're going with this. You're talking about the denominational world. You're talking about all those, quote, churches out there. They've got a lot of zeal. They've got enthusiasm. They've got get up and go. They've got oomph. They've got excitement. But they don't have knowledge. That's true. That is true. Many times that is true. But it can also be true about people who meet in these four walls on occasions like today. Now, I'm not saying that to point fingers and say, well, it's brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, you're this way. I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you, in the average audience, there are people who have been holding seats and pews down for decades, sometimes, sadly, and they worship, and yes, they worship according to, uh, or they worship with, with a great zeal and a lot of enthusiasm, but they really don't know why or what 
They're worshiping zeal without knowledge. We'll put it in simplistic terms. You can worship with all the zeal and enthusiasm that you desire. Anyone could for that matter. And if they didn't really understand why they're doing what they do in worship, they're wrong in that. We're about uh, six or seven minutes removed from partaking of the Lord's Supper, these two implements, the the blood and the body of Christ. If you don't understand that or someone doesn't understand that, they can't really use that as a proper act of worship. They say, well, well, there's such emotion tied to that. You know, to think about him hanging on a cross, and there ought to be. I've seen people that every time the Lord's Supper is passed around, they have tears literally flowing from their eyes. That's zeal. But if they don't understand why we do that and what it really means, that's lacking of knowledge. It's improper worship. You take the giving of our means, same idea, same thought. Someone says, well, the check I write each week or the cash I lay in that plate is probably more than anyone here, probably more than all of the people here. Very well may be. But if we're not giving to God, that's yet another act of worship, a part of our worship on the Lord's day. With knowledge, we're not actually worshiping. The singing would be the same. The preaching, the teaching would be the same. The prayers that are offered up would be the same. You could be fervent in prayer, sincere in prayer, but pray for things that are outside the will of God and our worship could not be acceptable. The meaning of worship, this situation, the first one is very simple. This is a woman in her her nation that had zeal without knowledge. But something I found peculiar as I've tried to study this text the last few weeks, just looking over this, is that there were not only a group in this context that had zeal without knowledge, the Samaritans, there was also a group that had knowledge without zeal. He said there in the latter part of it, that which salvation is of, that is in the possession of, the Jews. He says, you worship and you know not what. We know what we worship. And salvation is of the Jews. What does that mean? What that means is that many of the Jews in that day absolutely knew what truth was. They knew the scriptures, for example, but they had no zeal to actually use it in their worship. You know, we we sometimes, members of the church, and we should, and this is not necessarily altogether a bad thing, but we put a lot of stock, a lot of time into teaching and understanding why we do what we do. Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Why do we give of our means? Why do we pray in the way that we do? Why do we preach and teach? Why do we do all the things that we do, inclusive of prayer? Why, why, why do we do this? And we may have the knowledge... We may have book, chapter, and verse upon book, chapter, and verse to explain to someone out there in the world why we're doing this, why we're performing and worshiping in this way, and there's something good to be said about that. But if we have knowledge without zeal, we fail in the same. Now, I understand it's easy to fall into this pitfall or fall into this hole in life, and maybe it's this happened for you on one or two occasions, maybe it happens regularly, and if that's the case, I'm really sad to, to know that, or you ought to be sad to know that, but to come to a worship service and, and get in and get out. And it's not about what we get out of it. It's about what we give to God, keeping that in mind, but to come to a worship service and just go through the motions. It's time to sing, so we sing. 
It's time to give, so we give. It's time to pray, so we pray. It's time to learn, so we learn, and on and on. All of these things. Just to not have any kind of excitement or any kind of fire about us. And, and oftentimes, I'll admit, you can see that in certain areas, perhaps a little more readily, a little more easier than others. You can go into a congregation, and it doesn't matter what song they sing, it seems like they've never heard them. The way they, the, the, the level of enthusiasm that's put into them, the energies that are given over by some people, it seems like they've never opened the book before. don't know what the words are because they're certainly not singing with all their heart. Go to the other congregation up the road, though, and you can get all of that. You can feel like they are, they're just excited about being there. That's just a measuring mark. That's not anything necessarily standard. But you see, that's the back opposite of the way that this woman and her, her family, her people were. They had zeal without knowledge, but the Jews had knowledge without zeal. Let me take you to a passage that kind of supports that, if you will. Go with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7, I believe it is we need to go to. Mark chapter 7. Look what happens here along about verse, um, verse 6. Mark chapter 7 and verse 6. Here's what the Lord says about the Jews, by the way. He says, And he answered and said unto them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied, that is Isaiah, prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people, the Jews, that is, Honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now just let that sink in for just a moment. He says, there are a people that honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now I normally read across that, and I think I jump to the first conclusion. This is not wrong to go to. But I say, well, you know, what he's describing is a people that say, I love God, I love God, I love my Lord, I serve my Lord, He's my master. And they say all that, but they won't do anything with it. There's a sense where that's true. But there's also a sense contextually in Mark chapter 7 where what Jesus is getting at, if you want to boil it down, what he's getting at is to say this, there are people who know what to say, but they don't know how to do what they say. They've got knowledge, but no zeal. Drop down to verse 8, verse 7, if you would. He says, how be it? This is right behind it. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Verse 9, skip over verse 8, go to verse 9. And he saith unto them, full well you rejected the commandments of God, and that you may keep your own traditions. What does that prove? It proves they knew what God wanted. He didn't say, look at it carefully, he did not say, well then, you reject, well then you were ignorant of the commandments of God. No, he says to the Jews, you rejected them. You knew what they were. You just didn't have any enthusiasm to do anything except for just mouth service to me. You wouldn't actually worship me. You wouldn't actually live your life for me. You just talked a big game. That's a nutshell of what's being stated in the context of Mark chapter 7. Now that's easy to do too. To have zeal with no knowledge, we can be guilty. But have knowledge with no zeal, we can probably be twice guilty. That's not proper worship. When you think about the true meaning of worship, the true meaning of worship is expressed in the context. And what he's saying here is, yes, there are some situations that exist, the Samaritans versus the Jews, but neither one of those groups are right where they are. Neither one. But not only can we notice in this meaning the situations, what about substitution? 
She told Jesus, you know, we've been worshiping in this mountain, Jesus. You're telling us Jerusalem, but we've been substituting for that. We've been substituting this mountaintop that we're looking at. That's where we've been worshiping. God can't accept that. Now, we know directly we could express that or illustrate that as idol worship. More and more, we've got religions that exist among us and around us, and these are not necessarily new. They go way back before the days of Christ. But there are religions that have popped up all throughout the centuries and throughout time where someone actually worshipped an idol. Maybe it was made of stone, maybe made of wood, maybe it was something small kept in their house on their mantle, maybe it was something that was raised up high in the middle of a city. They worshipped idols. You can't worship an idol and claim that that idol worship is directed toward God. Think about this. A wife walks into a room and finds her husband in a passionate embrace of another woman. Well, she's shocked. Why, he's been faithful to me all these years, and here I walk in, and there he is. He's got his arms around this strange woman. Now, here's his answer. He turns around and he says, Hey, honey, don't be upset. Every time I'm with her, I think of you. Say, so that won't cut it. No. And you can't put an idol in your living room. And I'm not saying that any of us are necessarily doing this, but you can't put an idol. No one can put an idol in before them and say, Well, when I look at the statue, I think about God. No. It's not acceptable at all. We worship sometimes ourselves, we worship our finances, we worship our recreation, we worship our families, and on and on. Anything, by the way, that comes between or before us and God puts God uh, put, is put ahead of God. That is idolatrous worship. And she says, well, I've been worshiping in the mountain. Basically, Jesus says it doesn't matter. And she says, well, it's just like you've been worshiping in Jerusalem. He says, there's going to be a day coming when the place in which you worship will matter none. The situations are simple. Some have zeal without knowledge. Some have knowledge without zeal. The substitutions are impossible. There's nothing that can take the place of worship unto God. That's illustrated in that word must. Verse 24, they that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the meaning of worship. But second, I want you to notice with me the motive of worship. Jesus gets into that discussion with her basically also in verse 23. He said, but the hour cometh and now is. Meaning, lady, this is happening now and you need to know it. The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers. Now there can be false worship. There can be those who refuse to worship. There can be those who worship improperly. But he says, The hour cometh when true worshipers will worship the Father, underline that in your mind, in spirit and in truth. For, underline this, your Father seeketh such to worship Him. First of all, why do we worship? What's the motive of worship? Well, the motive of worship is simple. We worship because God wants us to. Don't put ourselves in it first. It said, The Father seeketh such to worship Him. You say, Are you saying God desires worship? Yes, we all understand that. Yes, God does, and the Scripture backs that up. 
God's seeking, or seeketh, as the King James says, meaning continue to look out for someone to worship. And the people who do, preceding a phrase in the verse, are the true worshipers. God's not looking down on a building, and this is, this is great for, for you or for any, any group that meets in any locale. He's not looking down on the building and saying, well, you know what, out of their building uh, would probably seat, if you put a little space in between each person, this building may seat 200. And so I'm looking for 200 worshipers on the Lord's Day. He's not looking for that. He might be pleased with that, but he's not looking for that. He's looking for true worshipers. And what that means is that buildings sometimes are filled or even not so filled with individuals who may be in their lives and in their hearts not truly worshiping. God desires to be worshiped. Now, how does he want us to view him? The phrase is used two or three times here, twice in this same verse, to worship thee, phrase, Father, in truth, and the Father seeketh, such to worship Him. What does that mean? It means God wants us to worship. Our motive for worshiping God is because we see Him in our eyes as our Father. Now times have changed physically right now and I'm not sure that all men who have children ought to be fathers. And you know what I'm talking about in that. That's certainly the case. And therefore, because of that, there are a new generation of children that are being reared up who have no respect and no appreciation for their fathers, in some cases because those fathers have done nothing to earn that respect or appreciation. But many of you, the majority of you, know what a father really is or what your father perhaps was when he lived. You know what that means. You know that your father desired honor. And you say, well, what does honor have to do with worship? It has a lot to do with worship because how much we honor God or honor our fathers has to do with how we looked at them. The word worship, as a matter of fact, if you boil it down, comes up with two root words, really, or a root word and a a, a suffix, and that is worth, worth worth-ship. What that means is I'll worship God for what I think He's worth. Now, if He's not worth anything to me, then we might say, uh, well, it's no big deal whether I worship or not. If He's not worth anything to me, then God could be exchanged or traded out for something. We're a long way from January, but I've worshipped in places before, and it's disturbing. But you let January come around that thing called the Super Bowl, there's no doubt in some people's minds where they're going to be on Sunday night and it won't be in worship. Why? Well, they might not want to vocalize or say it, but what they really are saying is, God doesn't mean that much to me. This is worth more. It's not true. Families come into town, they're there, and they're looking for something to eat, a place to lay down, and here it comes up. It's time to go to worship on Sunday morning and we choose to stay and tend to them. No. God's not worth enough, I guess, in our eyes. He's seeking us to worship. But not to just worship Him as God, but to see Him as our Father. Now, let me tell you something about that. I don't have to know, you wouldn't have to know everything about God to properly worship Him. 
When I was a little boy, four and five years old, I guess I, I came to, became more wise as I got a little bit older. But when I remember when I was four or five years old, that's one of my earliest recollections of my father going to work. And he worked for a TV station for 54 years, the same job as an engineer. And I remember him getting up and going to work every morning. Sometimes he'd go in 4, 35 o'clock in the morning, whatever time they signed on. Usually TV stations back then, you remember, they signed off at midnight, probably even before that, but all of them at least midnight, and signed back on with the national anthem about 5. So he had to be at work by then. And I remember him leaving morning after morning after morning after morning. And I remember uh, sometimes I would even awaken. We had the old percolating uh, coffee pot. You know, that was scary to a kid, so I had to get up and go see what it was every morning. And I'd watch Daddy drive off. When he'd come home in the evenings, I'd see him pull back in. You know what I didn't know about him for, for those few years? I didn't even know what he did. If somebody had come to me at that age and said, what did your daddy do? I don't know. Does he work? He leaves the house. I didn't know what he did. But I appreciated what he did. We may not know everything that God does or how God does it, or anything of that sort, but we can still appreciate what God does do. Now, what does God want? He wants worship. And worship, I want to add this thought, worship is a grand expression of love. Worship expresses our love toward God. You know, Father's Day comes around once a year, and, and, and many times children, it doesn't matter if they're five years old or 55 years old, they're trying to decide what they're going to get their father for Father's Day. They might get him slippers. They might get him a tie. They might get him a new grill, a tool set, whatever it is. That's different for everybody. But do you know what the father really wanted? He just wanted love. Father's Day is only a day to honor a father. Now, the thing is, we don't learn to worship God as our father because of who our fathers are. We learn to know our fathers by who God is. That's important. So when we think about the meaning of worship, if you want to say it that way, the meaning of worship is that there are those who have zeal without knowledge, those who have knowledge without zeal. You think about the motive of worship, we have to worship God based upon the fact that we see Him as our Father, even though we may not always understand exactly what He's capable of doing. Now, here's the final thought, and it closes all of this. We have to also understand, and it's the brunt of the context, believe it or not. All that was to establish this. We have to also understand the method of worship. God's worship has a certain method. That is a certain pattern, a certain example by which it has to be established. And what is it? Verse 23 says it. Verse 24 says it even more clearly. For God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. That's one way. But yea, in truth. There's a method. And when you think about the idea of spirit, that has to do with not God's spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit or, or the Holy Ghost being spoken of here. That has to do with the spirit of man, the spirit that is within man. Now, God breathed into us a living soul, we find out according to Genesis chapter 2. So whatever spirit we have, if that spirit came from God, it's going to be God-like in a sense, at least in the beginning. 
And our spiritual part of our worship toward God has to do with, and I've already referred to this a little earlier really, but I want to reiterate, our enthusiasm. I've said before in different places, maybe even here, we have no business as Christians going around looking like the picture on our driver's license. There's not a person in this world who's a faithful child of God who ought to look that way in front of the world. And especially when we worship. Is worship a drudgery? Is it something that we come and we do for an hour or so or two or three, maybe four max a week, and we just stand here and say, well, I can endure it, but I'll never enjoy it. Shouldn't be. He said God is a spirit. That is, God is a spirit, and He deserves to be worshipped in your spirit, in your enthusiasm, after our means. Now, the best way to do that is to understand God's Word. I appreciate the, the preaching that's gone on here for the decades. Many of you don't realize this, but I remember this congregation when I was four and five years old. My, my uncle, my daddy's twin brother, would come here and hold gospel meetings several times. I remember coming to those. And I've known a brother, Brother Clyde Ray. I've known of others that have passed through this pulpit. I know Aaron Dodson. And I appreciate men who are willing to preach and teach the Word of God. Not about the Word, but to preach the Word of God. And you see, to know the Word of God is to interject into us some enthusiasm. If someone came up to you today and said, well, what do you know about brain surgery? You probably, most of you, not that I know of, would carry on an hour and a half conversation about brain surgery. Why? Because you don't know anything about it. No excitement, no discussion there. You don't know anything about it. But I would assume many of you could carry on a conversation about God's Word. What do you know about God? What do you know about our Lord? What do you know about salvation? What do you know about living life according to God's pattern? You could carry on a conversation about that. At least we should. And be able to do it with enthusiasm. God is a spirit. Therefore, He desires that we worship Him in spirit, that is, with some level of enthusiasm and in truth. I had a guy back several years ago. I've been acquainted with him for a long time, but he would come on occasion. He would show up various places where I would preach and such, and he would sit and listen to me preach. We were friends from, from school and all that. And, but he would always just kind of listen and leave. He finally one day obeyed the gospel. And he came back to another place to hear me preach, and here's what he came up to tell me. He said, Jim, I want to tell you something. You preach a whole lot better than you used to. He may be right to an extent. But I tell you, I know what had changed. He listened a whole lot better than he used to. He had a different outlook. He was enthusiastic about the Word of God, and therefore when the Word of God was being used and discussed and even read, he had some excitement about him. So we worship in spirit, that is with enthusiasm. Second, we worship in truth. This is the method of worship. It must be according to truth. Now, I'm going to put out beside that word, instead of enthusiasm, we'll put example. There has to be a standard. There has to be, and you well know this, a set way that we worship God. Let's go over for a moment to the book of Psalm. I happen to have Psalms and Proverbs in the back of this Old New Testament. Go to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Let me show you something here. It's pretty clear, really, pretty plain. 
Psalm 145 and verse 18. Here the psalmist writes this by inspiration, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in... You're looking at the last word, Psalm 145 and verse 18, in truth. What does that mean? What it means is if you want to draw nigh to God and come to God in worship, you can't do it except you do it in truth. You say, well, I've got a lot of spirit about me. I have much enthusiasm. You may well do it. But if you don't have the example of God for how you worship and why you worship, you don't have worship. Worship must be in spirit with enthusiasm. Must be in truth, that is, with example. But I want to add one as we close. It must be enjoined. Enthusiastic, by example, but enjoined. You say, well, how is that that we can gain it from the text? Well, he told her, you worship in this mountain, you know not what. Salvation is of the Jews. He, he tells her very quickly, yes, there is a time when you've worshipped here. There's a time when we've worshipped in Jerusalem, but there's a time that is even now when we don't worship in a place. We don't worship in a mountain. That doesn't contradict that we've come together in a building to gather in an assembly. But the worship of God does not have to take place inside of a church building. We used to teach our children, I've tried not to, but we used to teach our children, I can't do the hand motion anymore, where they would say, well, here's the church and here's the steeple, open it up and here's all the people. That's as wrong as wrong can be. Here's the church, there's a steeple, you look on the outside, you might find a building. That's all that is. It's backwards. We have to enjoin with God in worship. The worship that is deemed by God, true worshipers, that's the phrase right out of here, true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. I want you to go to one more phrase before we close this. Go back to the book of Mark. This is not an exact parallel by any means, but it is a description of what God desires. Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. You'll be familiar with it if you are not turning there. You'll still recognize it. And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. What do you mean, God? When he says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, he says you have to worship me selflessly. You've got to put me at the center of you. See, one of the things that worship does to us is it invites God to be in our lives. Yes, and that's true, just as prayer was in the last hour. Many of you have been around a poker for a fireplace before. That poker sitting beside the fireplace may never even get warm, but you put in those coals, and before long, what's happened? The fire's gotten in the poker. It's red hot, and it can spread anywhere you desire. We have to know and understand that worship has to be a part of our lives. So we worship Him uh, selflessly in our hearts and in our minds. We worship Him also in that thoughtfully. Our minds have that ability to think. And we have to worship Him practically. He says, with all thy strength, that is power. Now we can put our efforts, we can put our powers, and however you want to say that, our strengths into doing anything in life. But there's no better thing to do with it than worship. 
true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with anything today? It has a lot to do with some things. But for you, it may have a lot to do with nothing. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God's, then we haven't, in essence, illustrated it as of yet because it wasn't discussed in the context. But if you're not a child of God's, you cannot worship to begin with. You cannot take part in what God commands. Through faith, repentance, confession, and even baptism, you can put on Christ, and then you can begin a path of worshiping Him, worshiping according to His plan. But most of you here, I recognize your faces. I've been here too many times not to. And You're children of God. You're Christians. And you worship God regularly. But do you worship God properly? To do anything less than what he desires is to fall so far short of what he deserves. If you're here this morning, you are a child of God's, and, and anything in your life stands between you and God. It's hindering your worship. It's hindering your relationship, the fellowship that you ought to have with him. It needs to be taken away. Sin would be the only thing that would do such. That sin must be put out of your life. You do that through prayer and repentance. I appreciate you being here this morning, but I invite you this morning during this period to enjoin yourself to God initially through your obedience to His plan and remain faithful to Him through your worship. While together we stand and as we sing.